Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Secret of the Samurai Sword by Phyllis A. Whitney. Volume 3, Chapter 6 The Cat That Mewed They were only a short distance from the main shopping street, and they went out into the pale sunshine that bathed Kyoto and crossed the Sanjo Bridge over the Kamo River. Kawaramaki was a theater and shopping street, and while it was not so wide as the Ginza in Tokyo, it seemed very bustling and busy to them. Shops of all kinds, from the open front type to those with show windows and doors like any American shop, rimmed the sidewalks. Celia paused before a window with a cry of pleasure, and Stephen stopped too. Not because it was a doll store, but because the doll in the main window was a samurai, like the one they had just seen in Mr. Sato's painting. Now they could examine the minute details of dress and armor, and Stephen bent to study the little figure. The trouble with the painting, he said, is that the artist didn't put everything in. Now if I took a photograph of this doll, you'd really get a record of what it looked like. An artist doesn't have to put everything in, Celia told him heatedly. He suggests, and your imagination does the rest. That is, if you have an imagination. Stephen threw her a quick look. Hey, you sound peeved. What's with you? Why are you mad? You're the one who spoiled the picture for me. Never mind, Celia said with a glance at Gran, who was studying another part of the doll window. She always felt upset when Stephen was annoyed with her, and sometimes for that very reason she seemed to make things all the worse. But she didn't want Gran to notice the trouble between them. She gave her attention to the dolls in the window and tried to forget about her brother. Some of the dolls were small, others a foot or so high, and the most elegant ones were dressed in fabulous silks and brocades. The ladies had little black wigs upon their heads, combed in the intricate way that only the geisha, the entertainers, wore their hair. There was an old lady doll and a little boy doll with round, plump cheeks that she had seen on real children only that morning. They're so wonderful, Celia murmured. I know, Gran said. Why don't you make a Japanese doll for yourself, Celia? It would be something to remind you of Japan. Make one, Celia echoed. But I don't play with dolls anymore. This isn't playing with dolls, Celia. In Japan, doll making is an art, Gran said. You can see that from these beautiful ones in the window. Many grown people have collections of which they are very proud. But how in the world would I know how to start? Celia wanted to know, as she now examined the dolls with more interest. When we get home, we'll ask Tani-san if she knows anyone who can teach doll making. I believe there are kits you can put together. How would you like lessons in that? Celia agreed in delight that she would. Stephen shook his head over doll making but Gran only smiled at his expression. Never mind, she said. We'll be polite and not tell you what we girls think of judo. They went out along the street again, and Celia warmed to her grandmother with a little surge of affection. When they came to the place where the street opened onto Shijo Bridge, Stephen recognized someone on ahead of them. There's the Japanese girl you were talking to this morning, Celia, he pointed out. Celia saw Sumiko with her two little girl cousins in hand, waiting for the traffic light to change. She called her quickly, 
and Sumiko's dark eyes lit with pleasure as she came through the crowd to join them. Gran was happy to meet her, and when she learned that Sumiko was taking her two small cousins into the Takashi Maya department store, she suggested that they go along. Inside the store was like any busy American department store, except that all the customers were Japanese and you couldn't understand the language. There were escalators that only went up, and girls in maroon uniforms stood at the foot of each moving stairway, welcoming people to the store and telling them to be careful going up. The floor that interested Celia most was the one where Western-style dresses for ladies were being shown. Dozens of plaster models, all exactly alike, were set so close together that they made practically a forest of blonde ladies, each wearing a different dress, but all looking the same. How strange that the black-haired Japanese should like blonde models. On the top floor, they stepped through doors onto an open-roof garden that had been given over to a playland for children. There was a small Ferris wheel, a tiny merry-go-round, and trains that ran on tracks, all out in the open air with a marvelous and complete view of the city. Most department stores in Japan have a play area on the roof, Gran said. It's a nice custom. Sumiko's little cousins were excited as she took them over to the train platform, bought tickets for a few yen, and tucked one at each car. Off they went, clinging to their seats, solemnly enjoying themselves. Aren't they just darlings, Sumiko said. But Johto makes me cross. The Japanese think a boy should never be corrected until he's at least seven years old, and even then he's given preference over his sisters and pushes them around like he pleases. But he doesn't push me. This afternoon I slapped him good and hard. Her eyes snapped as she spoke, and a spot of red came into each cheek. Now I suppose I'll get another lecture from my grandfather for doing such a horrible thing. There was a moment's awkward pause, and Gran changed the subject quietly. We saw some lovely paintings by your grandfather this afternoon, Sumiko. Sumiko nodded without much interest. He's always painting. That's his one pleasure, besides telling me I have to learn to be a proper Japanese. She waved as the little girls went by on their train, but her thoughts were clearly on other matters. Gran was considering her thoughtfully, and Celia hoped that Sumiko wasn't making a bad impression because of her discontent at home. The silence grew long, and to break it, Celia spoke of the samurai picture that was so different from Mr. Sato's other work. Sumiko glanced at her quickly. You mean you saw the painting of the samurai dying with that sword in his hand? I'd like to see that one. I've heard that all the family were upset when Grandfather gave that painting away. He'd always refused to sell it, and then suddenly he wouldn't have it in his house anymore. Why did he give it away? Celia asked. It seems like something fine enough to hang in a museum. I've heard it is, Sumiko said. But when Japan lost the war, Grandfather had a bad time. He went into a terrible depression after Hiro's father died so suddenly and sat looking at that picture for days at a time, they say. Hiro was the only little boy then, but he still remembers. Then one day, Grandfather wrapped the picture up and went out of the house with it in order that no one was ever to mention it again. That's a rather sad story, Gran said. It's hard for us to understand Japanese thinking sometimes. I wonder, Sumiko, 
Do you suppose Gentaro Sato would be willing to talk to me? Sumiko sighed. I can ask him if you like, but I don't think he'll see you. He seems to dislike all the Americans who come to live in that house you're living in. I suppose he'd rather not see any Americans on our hill at all. Then don't ask him right away, Grant said. In the meantime, I wonder what he'd say if I wrote him a polite note and asked if you might come and take lessons in doll-making with Celia. She may need an interpreter, and it would be a big help if he would let you come. The gloom vanished from Sumiko's naturally pert face. That would be wonderful. Japanese dolls are beautiful, but couldn't I, couldn't I just come? I mean, without asking Grandfather? Sure, why not, Stephen put in. If Hiro comes, I don't see why you can't. Grand shook her head firmly. No, if Sumiko is going to make her home in Japan, she has to be on good terms with her grandfather, and we must treat his wishes with respect, whether we like them or not. We're guests here, and we must not forget that. Sumiko looked so disappointed that Celia longed for some way in which to cheer her up. Never mind. If Gran writes him a note and asks politely, he may let you take lessons with me, after all. First, Gran said, we'll have to locate a teacher. Before they left the playland roof, Celia stood for a moment at the parapet, looking out at the great ranges of mountains that cupped Kyoto. Beside her, Gran pointed. Do you see that big, bare space on that one mountain? That's where they build the big Daimonji bonfire every year. There are bonfires on other hills, too. Perhaps you'll see them this summer. They come during the time of the summer festivals. Sumiko and Celia looked at the huge space where all the foliage had been kept from growing. Gran turned away to speak to Stephen, who was taking pictures of the two little girls, and Sumiko spoke softly to Celia. I wish we could skip those festivals. I wish they'd never come. But why? Celia asked in surprise. I should think they'd be beautiful and exciting. I suppose they are, but you don't know what it's like. Everybody expects me to do and say the right thing and keep all the customs straight, when half the time I don't know what's right and what's wrong. And Hero is always laughing at me. The way he did with those flowers, Celia said. But Tani-san laughed at me, too, and I didn't mind. Well, you're a foreigner, and you look like one, so nobody expects you to know Japanese ways. But they expect me to. And it's a different sort of laughter when I make mistakes. You can't tell by looking at me that I'm Nisei and born in America. On the way home that afternoon, Celia found her thoughts returning again and again to her new friend's difficult problem. When they reached the Japanese house, Grand consulted Tani about a teacher for the doll-making lessons. Tani consulted Satsuko. Satsuko said she would run out and ask the people at the corner store, and off she went, slipping very quickly into her geta. The store was apparently a center for service and information of all kinds. Corner store woman reported that she knew of a Mrs. Nomura and that she would fix it. In a few days, she would find them the most Ichiban teacher of doll-making. Ichiban was a word Celia liked. It meant the most A number one of anything. Gran sat down to write a note to Mr. Gentaro Sato, and at the same time Celia started a letter to her parents. Already there were so many things to write about. 
In the evening, Hero appeared to practice his English, and Gran asked him to deliver the note to his grandfather. She let him read it first, as for the practice. Knowing he was Sumiko's cousin, Celia looked at Hero with even more interest than before. He didn't resemble Sumiko at all, and was completely Japanese in his manner. He peered at the note through his round glasses and read it slowly and carefully, needing help on only one or two words. But when he was done, he looked unhappy and embarrassed. "'I'm thinking my grandfather say no,' he told them. "'Why should he?' Gran asked. "'The war was over more than ten years ago. Seems to me the Japanese and Americans have become good friends since.' Hiro groped for words. "'My grandfather does not wish Japan to enter fight, but entering, he does not think our country can be beat.' Always the people believe that the gods will not allow Japan defeat. Gran nodded thoughtfully. I remember the legend. People thought the gods would always interfere and blow the ships of the enemy away from the sacred land of Japan. I suppose the same thing would hold for airplanes. Hiro nodded. Yes, this is true thing. When the gods fell Nippon, my grandfather cannot accept... So terrible a fate. My father is dying after war, when I am a very small boy. So my grandfather after that paints only harmless birds and flowers. And he can't forgive America, Gran asked. Not even when we have forgiven his country and are anxious to be friends. Hero made several apologetic bows. Please to excuse, he said, losing control of his L's again. Part of trouble is because you are coming to live in this house. Trouble. Trouble, Stephen said. Live. But Hero's attention was fixed on Gran. Maybe you do not understand. This house belonged to Sato family for many years. You mean your grandfather used to live here? Celia asked in surprise. You mean this is his house? No more now. Hiro said sadly. I am born here, and my father. Gentaro Sato also. This is fine house with big garden, but occupation needs for armory family. family. After war, we have no money, so we sell this house and go live in small house over there. Hiro gestured toward the house where all the Satos now lived crowded together. I am very sorry. Gran smiled at him kindly. You mustn't be. I can understand why he might resent those who came to live at his house. But if he never gets to know any Americans, it seems unfair he should judge us. Anyway, Hiro, you just give him the note. The Japanese are always polite, and it may be hard for him to refuse. At least we'll try. Stephen hurried to ask Hiro about judo lessons, and the Japanese boy was delighted to have the subject changed. There were very good classes in Kyoto, he said. He himself had studied judo for a while. He would be happy to take Stephen to his teacher and introduce him. Also, he had another project in mind. Maybe you'd like to see Japanese movies while making, he suggested. You mean a movie studio? Gran asked with interest. Hiro nodded. Uncle is working in movies. Studio here in Kyoto. I'm happy to be taking you. 
They all agreed that it would be fun to go, and asked him to let them know the day and time. Hero stayed for a while longer, talking to Stephen and letting him correct his English. Then he hurried home across the street. Before she went to bed that evening, Celia stood on the upstairs front veranda looking out over Kyoto, just as she had done that morning. Now the mountains were dark shapes against the sky, and a carpet of lights spread in all directions. The tooting of horns and the rush of traffic seemed more distant now, and the pale light of a misty moon bathed the city in an aura of mystery and glamour. Already she loved Kyoto, Cecilia thought, though she had made no more than a first step toward getting acquainted with it. She went around to the rear veranda above the garden and stepped through the open shoji, a sliding door with paper panes, into her own room. Out in the middle of the floor, Tani had laid out the padded futon that made up her bed. Celia got into her pajamas and slid between the covers that were welcome in the cool breeze blowing down from the mountains. Near the head of her bed was a low-standing lamp with an erect shade of white parchment, which sat like a little column on the mat and shed a soft yellow light in the room. With the honey-colored tatami and the beige wood of ceilings and posts, the room seemed glowing and golden in the lamplight. She did not turn the light out at once, but lay waiting for Gran to look in on her and say good night. She felt much less homesick than she had felt the night before. Things had not gone very well between her and Stephen today, but at least Gran seemed less like a stranger every minute. She heard Gran's slippers on the polished wood of the veranda and turned her head. Gran was wearing her cotton yukata. She stepped out of the slippers and came across the tatami, imitating the pigeon-toed walk of a Japanese lady, so that Celia laughed softly. The only trouble, Gran said, is that I can't get down on my knees as gracefully as Tani-san or stay there for as long. She came down with a little thud and sat cross-legged, as no Japanese lady ever would. Then she made several little tucking pats around Celia. I spent a good many years doing this for your father, you know, she said. It seems wonderful to have his children here in Japan with me. Good night, Celia, dear. When Gran had turned out the light and had gone to say good night to Stephen, Celia lay listening once more to the sounds of the garden and the street, as she had done the night before. The insect buzz seemed soothing now, and not at all strange, and she could identify the sound of Geta, the strumming samisen, and the horn of the tofu vendor. How quickly you became acquainted with a strange place and began to take it for granted. Her thoughts went skipping about tonight, running over the happenings of the day, and all the time she knew perfectly well the thing that was waiting there to move into her mind and push all other thoughts away. She tried to hold it off, but it came in more quickly than she wanted it to. In her mind's eye, she could again see the terrible beauty of that samurai picture. She could see again the warrior's agony as he leaned weakly against the gnarled pine tree. She did not want to dream about that picture tonight, and she tried instead to remember the doll shop with its charming figures in silk and brocade. At length her eyes grew heavy, and she fell asleep. It was the distant mewing of a cat that broke through her dreams. She came suddenly awake and knew that it must be well past midnight. 
The moon was high now, and its light shone on the satiny wood of the narrow veranda above the garden. There it was again, the faint mewing. And Tani had said that only Nekochan saw the ghost in the garden. Strange, but in these night hours when nothing was the same as it was in the daytime, she did not feel in the least frightened. Nor did she feel that the little lady ghost who visited the garden was make-believe. In the moonlight, anything was possible. Softly, she crept from beneath her quilts and crawled on her hands and knees to the veranda. She did not stand nor make any sound, but let her head come as high as the open rail so she could peer beneath it and down into the shadowy space below. There was nothing there except fish pond and pine tree and lumpy bomb shelter. Nonetheless, she stayed very still, her breath held in waiting. Something crouched in the shadows near the bamboo thicket, something that was not wholly black, as were the shadows about it, something with a face that shone hazy and pale in the moonlight as it stepped into the open. She was glad that she had the railing to clutch, for now she was more frightened than she had ever been in her life. Her palms of the polished wood were damp. This was not the gentle lady ghost of her fancy. The pale face had heavy black eyebrows, with deep eye hollows lost in shadow beneath. The mouth was a twisted black gash of suffering. That much she could tell in the brief moment in which the figure was revealed to her. There was a nearby street light as well as the moon, and she saw the horned helmet, the flash of red in the garments. And there, there surely were arrows stabbing into a ghostly body. Without a sound, the figure seemed to drift across the garden, its tortured face uplifted to the moon. Celia slid back from the rail and called softly to her brother. Stephen! Steve! Stephen, come quick! Hearing her, he rolled out of his own bed in alarm and came running onto the veranda. Celia covered her face with her hands. Out there! Out in the garden! she cried weakly. Stephen stared in the direction which he pointed. What? Where? I don't see anything. She opened her eyes and looked for herself. Moonlight lay shimmering in the still waters of the pond and made a silvery backdrop for the pine tree. But no figure moved in the garden. There was nothing there. You were having a dream, Stephen said, sounding justifiably impatient. He'll be all right now. Go back to bed. And he returned to his own room. Celia shivered, standing there in her pajamas. For a few moments her eyes searched the garden in its every corner, but nothing stirred in the shadows. She crept back to bed and snuggled down beneath the covers. Had she really dreamed what she had seemed to see? Had her memory of that painting been so clear that she had imagined a samurai figure down there in the garden? Somewhere in the depths of the house, the ginger cat mewed again the cat that was able to see a ghost. Chapter 7 Flaming Man In the morning, Celia was sure it must have been a dream. It had been fun to pretend about the lady ghost of her fancy, but this was something altogether different, and she did not in the least want to believe in it. She hoped Stephen would say nothing about the matter to their grandmother, but she might have known he would never hold his tongue. 
They were eating delicious Japanese melon for breakfast when Stephen looked at her and grinned. See any more ghosts last night? he asked. She kept still, eating her melon, drinking her milk. But Grant was interested at once. What's this all about? she asked. It's a wonder she didn't wake you up, too, Stephen said. The way she yelled for me to come quick and look at the garden. I didn't yell, Celia objected. I called you as softly as I could, and if you'd been a little quicker, you might have seen it for yourself. What did you see? he demanded. I don't even know what I was supposed to look for. My, but this sounds exciting, Grand said. What did you see, Celia? Maybe I was only dreaming, Celia murmured. She spooned up a big piece of fruit and lifted it partway to her mouth. I, I thought I saw someone down there in the garden. And she popped the melon in and chewed rapidly so she wouldn't have to talk. Grand looked serious at once. Someone in the garden? Do you mean an outsider? A man? Celia nodded, chewing. Grand called Tani, who came running in from the kitchen. Tani-san, are you sure you locked the gate last night before you went to bed? The maid vowed fervently that the gate had indeed been locked. She had seen to it with her own hands. Never, never would she take a chance that burglars might come in. I suppose if they really wanted to, they could come over that fence, Grand said. But the army put in regular doors downstairs with locks on them, so I think we're all right inside. It, it wasn't a burglar, Celia said. It was a, a, she sought for the Japanese word, an obake. Stephen snorted, and Gran regarded her with interest. How do you know it was an obake, she asked. Celia threw a hapless glance at Stephen. Well, it, it looked like that painting of a samurai that we saw yesterday. I mean, it had on a kind of helmet, and it wore those samurai pantaloons, and, and it looked as though there were arrows sticking out of it, though I guess I could have imagined those. Huh, I'll say you imagined, Stephen laughed out loud. I suppose this guy was waving a sword at his enemies, too, and he staggered around the garden? I didn't see any sword, Celia told him coldly, and she turned back to her grandmother. Now that she was into the story, she might as well explain it exactly as it had happened. The reason I didn't think it was a, a person was because of the awful expression on his face, as if it were suffering terribly. If it had been a man in the garden and he felt as awful as he looked, he surely would have been screaming for help. I see, Grand said gravely. She at least wasn't laughing. Tani, who had listened intently to all this, had caught the word obake. She nodded emphatically. Neko-chan was crying last night. Obake comes. Stephen put a hand on each side of his head and rocked it back and forth in mock despair. Oh, gosh, now you've got Tani-san going at it, too. The Neko, hearing itself referred to, came wandering in from the kitchen to rub itself against Celia's ankle. She leaned down to stroke it, wishing it could come to her help and tell them what it had seen in the garden. I'm terribly disappointed I missed all this, Rand said. Next time we have visitors, do wake me up, Celia. I'm the one who wants to interview a ghost. She left it at that, and Celia couldn't tell her what she really thought. For that matter, Celia didn't know what she thought herself. The whole experience had been too queer, 
and in broad daylight it didn't sound the least reasonable, or even possible. After breakfast, while Gran was out in the kitchen telling Setsuko, as she did after every meal, how good the food had been, and they were exchanging complimentary bows, the little corner store boy came in. He chattered in Japanese to Tani, who explained that all had been arranged. Soon, Mrs. Nomura would come to give Celia her first lesson in doll-making. Mrs. Nomura will probably feel more comfortable if she can sit on the floor, Gran said. So you'd better have the lessons in your room, Celia. You have a low table there to work on, and you can keep your things in the cupboard right at hand. All that morning Celia hoped that word would come from Mr. Sato permitting Sumiko to attend the lessons. But everything was quiet in the house across the way, and she didn't catch so much as a glimpse of her friend. Someone else took the small children to the nursery school, so Sumiko must have been otherwise occupied. Once from upstairs, Celia saw Mr. Sato come out and stand at the rail of his own balcony. He stood for a moment, studying the garden of his former home. Had Mr. Sato, too, seen the spirit last night? And was he, too, doubting the message of his own eyes? But there was no telling, and he went back inside shortly, without a glance in her direction. Celia put away the book she'd been reading, wondering what to do with herself. Stephen had gone exploring again, but he had wanted to go alone. Gran sat at her desk in the living room downstairs, working on her portable typewriter. She mustn't be disturbed when she was working. And Setsuko and Tani were busy. Even the ginger cat had gone off on its own pursuits. Celia went to kneel on the green silk cushion before the little lacquer dressing table and began idly pulling out the drawers again. They were filled with her own things now. Handkerchiefs, beads, a bottle of sweet-smelling Japanese cologne, and a variety of small objects. Under a pile of handkerchiefs was the lacquer box with the pine tree on the lid. She took it out and looked at it once more. It might do to keep spools of thread in, or her scissors, pins, and needles. When she opened the box and put several spools of thread into it, she found that the cover wouldn't go on. She dumped the spools out and looked into the box. It was plainly more than two inches deep, yet it wouldn't hold a spool of thread because the wooden bottom was so shallow. With one finger she poked at the bottom layer of wood, and it seemed to teeter a little at one corner. Perhaps it was a false bottom, and there would be more room in the box when she got it out. She turned the box over and shook it hard. The wedge of wood didn't fall out, but there was a slipping sound, as if there was something underneath, in the bottom of the box. Now she was really interested. She managed to insert the blade of her small scissors, and in a moment she had the false bottom out of the box. Underneath were a few flat-folded pieces of paper. She opened the largest one and examined it curiously. It was a narrow strip, about ten or more inches long, and about five inches wide. The paper was of a rough Japanese variety, and in the middle of it was a strange picture printed in black ink. The central figure was a barefooted man standing on what looked like a sawed-off tree stump. In his right hand he held an upright sword, and his brows were drawn down in an angry frown above eyes that looked very fierce. Behind him, rising to the top of the picture, terrible flames could be seen raging. 
Celia couldn't tell whether or not his clothes were supposed to be on fire, but by his expression, it certainly looked possible. Below the central figure were two smaller human figures, also standing on sawed-off stumps. One, a man, had a bushy tuft of black hair on each side of his head, and he was leaning on a staff. The opposite figure was a robed woman, her hands raised, palms together, in an attitude of prayer. Neither the man nor the woman seemed to be paying much attention to the flaming figure behind them. Beneath the hole was an oblong space in which Japanese characters had been written in a row. Celia had no idea what the picture meant, or why anyone should choose to hide it in a box with a false bottom. She laid it aside and picked up another folded strip of paper. This one was merely a wrapping to protect a small square of heavier white paper inside. This bore a picture also, but one that had been carefully drawn in black ink and not printed. The drawing represented a tiny dragon, very intricate in detail, with every scale, every curve of its tail, and of its open, fanged mouth beautifully worked out. It seemed to be looking back over its shoulder, as if it saw something interesting behind it. Celia could well imagine that someone might want to say so exquisite a drawing as this. As she started to put it down, she saw that the thickness of the paper had been misleading. There was another small drawing of the same size on a tiny square underneath. She separated the two and found that the second drawing was also of a dragon. Perhaps this was the one the first dragon was looking back to see. It was not a duplicate, but an individual picture of another tiny dragon. This one was looking ahead. As much work had been spent on this drawing as on the first, yet all the details were different. She laid the dragons aside and turned her attention to the last strip of paper. Again, the outer paper had been used for wrapping. Inside, cut out of cardboard, was a key, a couple of inches long. But why of cardboard? What could you do with a cardboard key? Still puzzling, Celia picked up the little box again and saw that something was stuck in the bottom of it. When she lifted it out carefully, she found it was a dry, greenish-yellow leaf, almost like a small open fan in shape. It looked familiar, as if she had seen the same sort of leaf on trees at home but she didn't know what kind of tree it had come from. Why would anyone put a dried leaf in a box with these other things? She replaced it in the box and put the two little dragon pictures and the cardboard key on top of it. For a moment longer, she sat looking at the larger picture. Tani might be able to help her. She went downstairs and found Tani outside sweeping the garden and washing the stepping stones, something she did every day. Celia showed her the picture and asked her what it said underneath. Tani regarded it with interest. Paper come from temple, she said. It's picture of Fudomio. Very angry God. He's mad at all bad people. Very strong God for good people. Not afraid of fire. Not afraid of hurting. But why would somebody save a picture like this? She asked. Tani tried to explain as best she could. This was a god who helped those who were suffering. That was his name written at the bottom. Someone in trouble might keep such a picture. With that, Celia had to be satisfied. She went thoughtfully back to her room and sat looking once more at the picture of the angry god. The paper from the temple looked yellow with age, and the folds were brittle, 
as though it had been in the box for a long time, forgotten, perhaps by the person who had put it there, or perhaps tucked away by a child who was hiding his treasures for fun. Those dragons had not been drawn by a child. Once the artist Gentaro Sato had lived in this house, did these things have anything to do with him? Celia wondered.